Well, that is the gospel. That is, that is the good news. Sheila, thank you for getting Carrie Underwood to lead us in worship today. <laughs> awfully, awfully great of you. I'd heard she was busy today, but she got her to record that for us and set all that up, and that's amazing. So when will you get her here in person? Will that be a couple weeks from now? Maybe for Easter. Let's do that for Easter. You want to? Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? By the way, we changed the dress code. You all have to dress in formal, like suit attire now to come to chapel. That would go well, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, let's add that rule, right? Let's see, what is it? We uh, No membership, no offering, never start on time, and you have to wear a suit and tie. Yeah, right. So actually, I'm getting on an airplane as soon as we're done here and going to Midland, where I'm speaking tonight, and have no chance to change anything. And so, as a result... I'm jealous of all of you guys out there in your jeans. I just want, you, just want you to know that. But so glad to get to be here and to get to do this with you. So I'll be in Israel the next two Sundays. So you're trading up next week. Christy Penn is next week. So you're trading up big time. And then Mark Terman the week after that. And then you're stuck with me the week after that. And so uh, we will be missing you. We will do a back-to-back in Israel. We hope, we trust, we think. I've uh, had to cancel two years' worth of Israel trips. Yeah, exactly, Mike, so we'll see. I have to take a COVID test tomorrow to get on the airplane on Wednesday is how it works. And so, assuming everything works out, that uh, we'll be there instead of here, but I will miss you. Janet, I will miss you. And thank you for praying for the Copelands and for all of those in Eastland uh, that have literally lost everything. Uh, Debbie uh, was actually on the news. She was interviewed in some of the news reports. Uh, Janet's I guess, sisters, sister-in-laws, I think how that works. So godly, so incredibly faithful, just trusting God, thanking God. Uh, she got out with her wedding ring, wasn't able even to get her husband's wedding ring. I mean, they banged out the door and said, get out now. And the, everything gone, just everything gone. So uh, tough days, aren't they? If you saw the overnight news, there was a shooting in Arkansas last night at a car show, 24 people. Injured, one killed. Manhunt this morning. They arrested one. There's still a manhunt this morning. Uh, yes, last night in Austin at the South by Southwest, there was a shooting. Four people injured last night. Uh, tough times. And then obviously Ukraine. Oh, cannot imagine. So, Mike, thank you for praying for them. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for your very kind words. Shannon and I love you and love being here so much. So, let's do go to the Father together. Lord God, we're coming to you right now so grateful that we can. So grateful to know, Lord God, that you are our living hope. You are the one who set us free. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the God of the universe. And all of this is in your hand. And you still calm the raging seas. Help us to trust you to do that today where we need you to do that. Where our seas are stormy. Where our hearts are in turmoil. Where it feels like you're asleep when we need you to be awake. When we don't sense your presence and we need your help. Father God, wherever that is for us, help us today to learn to trust you at that place in a way that could be transforming for us and encouraging for others. So we thank you now for speaking from your word as you've blessed us in your worship as we submit this time in your word to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the strange ways to know that as bad as things can be, we have always lived in a fallen world, is to kind of look back at things. And so to get ready for today, I look back at what else has happened on this day, March the 20th, in history. It's easy to believe that things are worse than they've ever been, that things are uh, on a level that we've never seen before, but that's really not true. 1760, there was a great fire in Boston that destroyed most of the city on this day. 
1760. 1861, an earthquake in Mendoza, Argentina, destroyed the entire city. 1861. 1956, USSR conducted a nuclear test in the midst of the Cold War. 1972, an avalanche on Japan's Mount Fuji killed 19 mountain climbers. And for those that are concerned about calories and about weight and about health and about all of that, in 1930, KFC was founded. <laughs> on this day, I don't know if that's good news or bad news or maybe a little of both, I don't know. Colonel Harland David Sanders founded KFC on this day. So there you go. That's your devotional thought. Do with it what you will. I don't know how to make a Bible study out of that, but it just is apparently what is true. So, in the midst of all that's happening in Ukraine, I need to ask you, what's your Ukraine today? What's the fear in your heart? What's the place in your life where the news is your news, where the story is your story, where the fear is your fear? I don't mean that rhetorically. As I was praying about today, this morning, I was praying about the fears that are in my heart. I want to ask you to do that today. And let's see how God can calm those fears and use us as a witness to a fearful world. So let's begin with the fact that God speaks to fear a lot in Scripture. We could stay here all day talking about all that God says about fear. It's been calculated that you can find 366 fear knots in the Bible. Well, now that's not technically true. If you look up the words fear not, they don't appear that many times. But if you see the context of it, the times where God on one level or another says not to fear. You can get to 366, which is one for every day of the year, including a leap year, right? That's how often God speaks to fear. Here's some examples. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I sought the Lord. He answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Not some, all my fears. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go. When I am afraid, not if, this is David, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. How can we learn to do the same thing as we're watching the news, as we're experiencing the news? How can you and I learn to do that? Well, as I was thinking and praying about that this week, my attention was drawn to a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that, as best I can tell in all of my notes, I have never preached on. Oddly enough, can't find that I ever have. Janet actually wrote a book on this very story, The Great Calm, which is coming out. Will be out when? When's the book actually out? Worry, yeah, it's coming out. It's coming out. Soon. Soon and very soon. So uh, we actually had a printing error. They got it out, and the the cover was wrong. It was off-centered, so they had to reprint the book, the people printing it, so it's coming out soon. And it's built on this very text. So Janet's written a book on this passage and what it means. I have never preached on it before today, but as I was studying it, it just became so clearly to me the story God wanted us to consider. So it's in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. So what's about to happen happens as the disciples are following Jesus. They're not out of the will of God when this storm comes up we're about to talk about. They're not doing the wrong thing. They're following Jesus. You can go to chapel on Sunday and have bad stuff happen on Monday. You can preach sermons on Sunday and have bad stuff happen on Sunday. Following Jesus is no guarantee of immunity from living in a fallen world. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. 
Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. The word tribulation, thlipsis in the Greek, was the word for this giant stone they used to crush grain into flour. In this world, you will be crushed. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So following Jesus is no guarantee that the storms won't come up. In fact, in some ways, when it comes to persecution and the attacks of the enemy, it actually makes things a little worse. Now, there's your devotional thought for the day, huh? There's a story I think I've told before about this Christian and non-Christian walking down the street when all at once the devil jumps out from behind a bush. And the non-Christian hides behind the Christian and says, quick, protect me. He's after me. And the Christian says, no, he's already got you. It's me he's after. <laughs> so you can expect to be tempted. If Jesus was tempted, we'll be tempted. If the disciples were persecuted, we'll be persecuted. You can follow Jesus right into a storm. That's just the way the fallen world works. The promise isn't there won't be storms. The promise is you'll have Jesus in the storms. The promise is if you follow Jesus, he will be in your boat when the storm comes. And that's even better. It's even better. So the disciples followed him. This is what the boat might have looked like. It's called the Jesus boat. He didn't scratch his initials on it, but it goes back to the first century. It was discovered in 1986. There was a drought on the Sea of Galilee. Lake level was down really low. Two brothers were out walking by the shore on the western side near the town of Magdala, and they saw a really old-looking piece of wood sticking up. And in Israel, everybody knows if he sees something old, call the authorities. whole place is one big archaeological dig. And they call the authorities, and they look into it. It's a first-century fishing boat, carbon dating tells us that. It's now on display. We'll see it in a few days. When I'm in Israel, we take people. We actually go out on the Sea of Galilee, and then we go at uh, Kibbutz uh, Ginneret, and then we go in where there's a museum built around it, and that's it as it's been preserved. 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. So we obviously don't know if this was the boat, but it was a boat like this would easily have, uh, have held 12 disciples in Jesus. Uh, could have been 15. And see the stern back there, that plank in the back? That's about to be important. Just a second. So they got into a boat like this, the disciples did. And behold, there arose a great storm, a mega storm, on the sea, Sea of Galilee. People say, why is it called a sea? It's not very large, 14 miles by 7 miles roughly. They just call it the Sea of Galilee, but they've always called it that. They also call it the Lake of Gennesaret or the Lake of Tiberias, but it's not like the Mediterranean Sea or the Pacific Ocean or something. It's pretty small, but nonetheless, an amazing body of water. A great storm, a megastorm, rose on the sea, and the boat was being swamped by the waves. So that's what the Sea of Galilee looks like when it's calm. My favorite body of water on the planet, just such a beautiful place to be. However, it's in an interesting topographical region. That's a topographical map. Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. And you can't really see it. I couldn't find a map that shows it exactly. But if you look to the west of that and to the northwest of that, that's actually a valley there. You can kind of see there on that map a, a valley. The Cliffs of Arbella are on the south, others on the north. It's a natural wind tunnel. So when fronts are moving from west to east, as they typically do, and they get there and they begin to fall and the cold air goes down and falls down into this basin where the Sea of Galilee is, they get amplified by this wind tunnel and they just come out of nowhere. It could look sunny like this and a minute later there can just be a storm on the Sea of Galilee. I was in a storm one time. I've been there 30-something times. One time. We were out. We always get on this boat, go out on the Sea of Galilee. We were out on the Sea of Galilee when a storm came up. Even the guys running the boat were a little afraid. It, was, it just came out of nowhere. 
It happens like that. Those of you going to Israel, don't worry, we'll be okay. We have life jackets. You know, we'll all walk on the water to get back. We'll be okay. Uh, but it happens very, very quickly, very suddenly. So this is not unusual that this megastorm appears. However, Jesus was asleep. Boy, there's a whole sermon in that. There's a storm out there, and it doesn't bother Jesus. He's okay. It's, he knows it's going to be all right. He knows it's going to be okay, but the disciples don't. And so they go to him. They wake him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And Jesus rose, said to them, why are you afraid? You have little faith. I'm with you. We're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. But nonetheless, to calm their fears, to calm their doubts, he rose. He rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Title of Janet's book, A Great Calm. Interesting to me that he rebuked the winds and the sea. Rebuking the winds would have calmed the sea. But he rebuked the sea as well to prove he is God of heaven and earth, God of wind and water, God of all of this. And there was a great calm. I also love the fact that Jesus met them where they were. He didn't say, okay, people, I'm on the boat. We're going to be fine here. I'm not going to drown on the Sea of Galilee. I didn't come to earth to drown on the Sea of Galilee. That's not going to happen. So just ride it out. Hang on. I'm going back to bed. Doesn't say that. Meets them where they are, even though they have little faith, meets them at the point of their little faith. Jesus does that. Jesus meets us where we are, not where we wish we were or where he wished we were. I love the old saying that God loves you so much, he'll meet you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. So he'll meet you where you are and lead you where you need to go. It's accommodation. It's called the doctrine of accommodation. God accommodates himself to us. That's the incarnation. Religions are climbing up to God, whether it's the fourfold noble path, eightfold noble truth of Buddhism or the five pillars of Islam or the reincarnations of Hinduism or the 613 laws of Judaism. Religions try to climb up to God, unsuccessfully try to climb up to God. Heard Jack Graham say in a sermon the other day that religions are like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. You might get further than me, but none of us are going to make it, right? Religion is trying to climb up to a perfect God, can't do it. Christianity is God climbing down to us. God could, we couldn't be one with him, so he became one of us. Meets us where we are, meets you where you are. No matter how large or strong your faith, Jesus said, if you have faith, there's a grain of mustard seed. Tiniest grain there is. Looks like a period at the end of a sentence. You can say to this mountain, be moved. It's not the content or, excuse me, the, the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. Oh, you have little faith. I love that. He met him right there. Rose, rebuked the winds and the sea. There was a great calm and then notice this. The men marveled saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him. They don't yet even fully understand who Jesus is. And still he met them. Still he blessed them. Still he answered their prayer. Still he did what they needed. Still he calmed their storm. I just love how God is that gracious. We don't have to get it all right. Don't have to get a lot of it right. We just have to know to go to him. Another time on this very sea, Matthew 14, that'll be a few chapters from this. Remember Peter walking on the water of Jesus? And he's doing great till he takes his eyes off Jesus. 
looks at the winds and the waves, and he cries out, Save me, Lord. In the Greek, it's just two words, Save, Lord. Shortest prayer in the Bible. And Jesus answers it. When you're in the storm, the right thing to do is to say, Save us, Lord. And no matter what the storm is, no matter where you are, he will meet you right there. So, question comes up, why would a God who can calm the storm allow the storm? If he can calm the seas, why does he allow a storm, he see? If he can heal cancer, why does he allow cancer? If he can heal heart disease, why does he allow heart disease? If he can raise the dead, why does he allow death? Why does God allow storms? Well, that's a very long conversation. We've talked about this a lot over the years. But from this text, we at least learn this answer to the question. God sometimes allows storms to show us our finitude and his infinitude. To show us that he can calm storms and we can't. To show us that he is God and we are not. To cause us to depend on him on a level we wouldn't otherwise. If you're anything like me, self-sufficiency is your own personal religion. Getting up earlier, staying up later, trying harder, working longer, you can do it is the mantra of our culture. It's this existentialist Western individualism, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged self-reliance that our culture so rewards, that we so affirm, that we so appreciate. And there's so much good in that. We are so captured, so inspired by Zelensky standing up to the Russians. What an incredible story. We love the stories of self-made heroes. And there's so much good in that. But then there come times when we're not enough. And sometimes God allows the storms to show us that we need God on a level we didn't think we did. An example of that, Charles Spurgeon is often considered the greatest preacher of the 19th century. I'd say one of the greatest preachers of all time. I used to read sermons by Spurgeon regularly, and I gave up because it was too discouraging. He could say more in a paragraph than I could say in a month. Just an absolute genius as a preacher. Started 47 different ministries in England. Made the Metropolitan Tabernacle the largest church in the world in its day. Was such a phenomenal preacher. You had to have a ticket to get in on Sunday to hear him preach. Now, they didn't sell them. They were free. But that was how they had to control the crowds. Was tickets to get in to hear him. Imagine that. Incredible communicator. Incredible pastor. Incredible brilliant mind, the most published author in history, because his sermons were published, 38 volumes of sermons, not to mention all the other writings of Spurgeon, the most published author in history. And yet, the man who suffered from such inflammatory arthritis, there were days he couldn't get out of bed, who suffered from Bright's disease, which is a debilitating kidney disorder. He had rheumatism, and he suffered severely from depression. There were weeks when he literally couldn't preach. He had a place in France where he would go, where they allowed him to go when his depression was so severe. And yet the greatest preacher of the century, one of the greatest ever. Spurgeon made this statement, I am certain I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon a bed of pain. Sometimes God allows a storm to show us our finitude and his infinitude. Mother Teresa said it like this, you'll never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So if you're ready to learn that lesson, if you're ready to learn from your storm that you're not God, if you're ready to go to God, if you're ready to cry out, save us, Lord, then what do you do? How do you do it? How do you fight fear with faith? Well, three very simple steps. 
So simple. All of us can understand them and all of us can do them. First of all, expect them. Don't be surprised. You're following Jesus right into a storm. Don't be surprised. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a darkened world. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the air, that Satan is the god of this age, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't be surprised by storms. You ought to expect them. And today's the day to get ready. The day to get ready is before the storms come. The day to get ready is now. That's a lot of Janet's book, is to prepare you for the storm when the storm comes. Expect the storm and then name it and take it to Jesus. Be specific about your storm. Be specific. We saw this last week. Be specific as you pray. You know, I guess God, He accommodates us. He meets us where we are. So I guess if I say, bless me, Lord, He knows what to do with that. But I wouldn't know what to do with that. If you walked up to me and said, bless me, Jim, well, you wouldn't do that. But if you did, what would I do with that? I mean, did you sneeze? Bless me? What, what, what do I do with that? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to give? Some of my prayers are so general. Even if God knew how to answer, I wouldn't know that He did. Be specific. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. God, there's a storm. Save me from the storm. God, I lost everything in the fires. God, stop what Putin is doing. God, protect the Ukrainian armies. God, protect Zelensky. God, save me. Be specific. Name your fear. Take it to God. Keep bringing it to God. And then when God shows up, tell others what he did. I love that this story is in the Gospel of Matthew. I love that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, who was in the boat that day, to write down what happened, to explain how they were of little faith and how transparent they were, how willing they were to share with others what God had done in their lives to pay forward the grace that they had received. When Ryan went through cancer eight years ago, the people that had been through cancer could help us like nobody else could. When my father died, a friend of mine in college who lost her father to cancer a few months earlier could speak to me like no one else could. When God shows up in your storm, tell somebody else in the storm. Be a good steward of God's grace. Pay forward God's love. Share with others God's mercy. Give to someone what God has given to you. And be looking now for a way to do that. How can I pay forward what God has paid to me? How can I be a good giver of God's grace? And at the bottom line, understand that the Bible never says there won't be storms. The Bible promises God will be with you in the storms, and that's even better. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So let me close with this. Henry Nouwen's book, Life of the Beloved, one of the great classics. I highly, highly recommend this to you. Nouwen himself, an amazing story, a Catholic priest, uh, on the faculty at Yale and Harvard, one of the most brilliant theologians of his day, felt God calling him to turn from that, to spend the last years of his life as a chaplain, as a minister, to a place called La Arche, a community in Canada for the mentally and physically challenged. This world-class Harvard-Yale theologian serving as a chaplain to mentally challenged people. And he said God called him to do that, not nearly so much for how he could bless them, but how they could bless him, how they could teach him. And it was through all of that that he learned that all of us are loved by God. All of us are the beloved. The world tells us the opposite. The world tells us we are what we do or what we say or what people think of what we do and say. 
The world tells us if there's a storm, it's somehow our fault. The world tells us to never let him see you sweat, to try harder to do better. The gospel says you are beloved. You are beloved, and that's what the book's all about. So, in the book, he shares some words that he felt God spoke to him that are at the heart of the book, and I'd like you to hear them as God's words to you today. Hear these words in your storm, in the fear, as God's word to you today. I have called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine, and I am yours. You are my beloved. Listen to this. This is God speaking to you. On you, my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have carved you in the palm of my hand and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. God says to you today, I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with a care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I have counted every hair on your head and guided you at every step. Wherever you go, God says this to you today, wherever you go, I go with you. And wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Would you take this moment and thank God that you are his beloved? That he considered your eternal life worth the death of his son. That Jesus would do it all over again just for you. Would you thank God that you are his beloved today? Now would you name your storm and give it to him in faith that he hears you and loves you and is in your boat? And would you ask him to help you to help somebody else, even today, with a storm that God would use to bring them to himself? And if you're not sure you've trusted Christ as your Lord, you're not sure you've come to that day where you've met him personally as your Lord and Savior, let me urge you to do that today. Get alone with him. Ask him to forgive your mistakes. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. Then tell a Christian what you've done so they can help you to grow in your faith. Make certain of your eternal life today. And if you know you have, thank God that you are his beloved. Father, I thank you that no matter what the world says or no matter what the world seems to feel, that you see me as your beloved today. Thank you that you're in my boat. Thank you that you meet me in spite of my little faith. Thank you that you're ready to calm every storm and every sea and every heart. Thank you that you are the God who loves and we are the people who are loved. We offer you our fears, our faith, our hopes, our hearts, our lives. In gratitude for such grace, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless.